Due to the nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This case includes the mention of sexual assault and murder. If you find that kind of topic triggering, please be advised not to listen any further. None of the information in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any of these cases. We intend to only gather and provide information that has already been given out to the public for you to easily understand. Here is our usual disclaimer. We mean no disrespect to the victims that are mentioned in this show. The research shared in this podcast is for education purposes only. To be a call for help. Sorry, guys, help. Yeah, guys what do we got to lose? Uh, he's getting older. He's a true monster in every sense of the word. Hey guys, welcome back to Case Red. Today we will be unlocking episode numero 4. We will be talking about the dating game killer, also known as Rodney Alcala. Rodney's crimes were taking place during 1970s and the 1980s. Although Rodney Alcala was known as a dating game killer, the dating game show was actually not that big of an influence in this whole entire case. If he just happened to be in a game show where the game show producers were unaware of his convictions in the past and the murders that were back then unsolved. But other than that, we'll still discuss pretty much the rest of his crime history and then talk about the actual game show at the end and that whole experience with him involved and other people involved. We'll start off with basic information about him. So Rodney was born August 23rd, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas. He was born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor, but decided to go by Rodney Alcala later on. In 1951, Rodney's father moved their family to Mexico and then ended up abandoning them three years later. When Rodney was at the age of 11, his mother moved him and his two sisters to a suburban side of Los Angeles. So keep in mind, he has been moving around, you know, from a young age. And at the age of 17, he joined the United States Army and served as a clerk. In 1964, after what was described as a nervous breakdown where Rodney went AWOL. All of a sudden, Rodney left his station at Fort Bragg in North Carolina and hitchhiked all the way to his mother's house in Los Angeles. This was three years after he joined the army. He was then diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder by a military psychiatrist and discharged on those medical grounds. But yeah, after leaving the army, Rodney went on to graduate from UCLA School of Fine Arts and later on studied film under Roman Polanski who is a known fugitive from the U.S. criminal justice system because he fled the country in 1977 while awaiting a sentence for unlawful intercourse with a minor. Um, also, one thing to point out, Rodney was similar to other um, serial killers that we've talked about before. He did have a high IQ. Going to UCLA is not easy. Back in the day, it wasn't as complicated as it is now. I'm sure the acceptance rates were definitely not as low. But he was smart. He was able to get into this degree. And he was talented in photography and also things in the arts. So that made it incredibly easy for him. Some of you might recognize um, Roman Polanski because he was a well-known um, movie director. And Roman was also married to um, Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was one of the victims that was killed by Manson and his group. Um, Sharon was murdered while Roman was away, if I'm not mistaken, he was away in Europe filming a movie. Um, and then later on, after she got killed, that's when he was sentenced to prison for 
intercourse with a minor. I find it interesting, right? The more we dive into these cases, the more we see connections between like serial killers and murderers. And it's like, yeah. you don't really see it coming. But for some reason, they are either related to one they're, or they've met one or they looked up to one. You know, Rodney studied under Roman. You never know. Maybe he did have a conversation with Roman and Roman, you know, started talking about things that set off those thoughts in Rodney's head. Okay, so now we're just going to talk about the crime history and the first known crime that happened in 1968 with Rodney in Los Angeles. Rodney tried to lure an eight-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro into his car and of which a person in the vehicle next to his car realized and followed Rodney back to his apartment because the eyewitness realized that the girl probably didn't know Rodney at all and it was all very suspicious. And as soon as he saw Tally enter Rodney's apartment, he immediately called the police and mentioned that he was very sure that the kid had no idea who Rodney was and called for help. Tally later on did an interview saying that she didn't want to go in at first, she didn't want to enter the car, but then Rodney lured her in by saying that he knew her parents. When the police arrived at the location, they kicked the door down because it was locked from the inside, and that's when they found Tally alive, raped, beaten with a steel bar while Akala was nowhere to be seen. When the police found Tally, she was covered in blood and the steel bar that she was beaten with was pressed against her neck. Tally Shapiro ended up being in a coma for 32 days, but she was later on able to get back on her feet and move on with her life. And something that I read was that the police officer had two options. It was either to chase after Ronnie who I guess jumped off a window or went through the back door or save Tally as she was laying on the ground and police officer thought that she was very unconscious or just pretty much dead with the amount of blood that was scattered all over the floor but he chose to save the girl and Tally Shapiro is still alive and well. Talking about Tally, she in her interview she said that she doesn't even remember you know walking up to the apartment and it just gives us the impression that he probably you know on the drive to his apartment he probably drugged her you know yeah. just so she wouldn't remember where she was at and yeah. you know the location at the hollywood apartment they found tally and the police ended up finding a ucla student id card that had rodney's name on it they also found hundreds of sexually explicit photos of young women and boys it's not a shocking you know finding for a killer most killers that get talked about they definitely have a hold of explicit photos one it's i'm pretty sure it's illegal in most states you know having explicit photos of people in general and it's funny because during this time he moved to los angeles to new york and nobody seemed to realize that this was a case that he committed he changed his name to john Berger, so the police was pretty much unable to track him down as soon as he crossed the whole country and he ended up enrolling himself into nyu film school like i said look at him he's in university that are very hard to get into. In 1971, he obtained a counseling job at a New Hampshire arts camp for children using a slightly different alias, which was John Berger this time around. Yeah. Can I just point out that he raped an eight-year-old and all of a sudden he's hired for an art camp for kids? What, what the fuck? Like, when I read that, I was like, this man is crazy. 
Yeah, obviously they didn't know it was him because obviously he was going under a different name and the only name they had was the name on the ID, which mm. was Rodney, so... Like, it makes you um, wonder also about, like, the people that you meet or, like, teach you. Like, who knows? N literally, you don't know if any of your teachers in high school was someone else back in the day, right? So now we're gonna move on to the cases that started appearing. In June 1971, Cornelia Michelle Crowley, a 23-year-old flight attendant, was found raped and strangled in her own Manhattan apartment. So her murder remained unsolved until 2011, so 40 years of absolutely nothing. On the day of her murder, her boyfriend Leon Bornstein received a call from her mother telling him that she hadn't heard from her daughter all day, so he offered to go check her apartment. And he obviously knocked into the door, there was no response. The police ended up breaking the back window and let Leon in, only to tell him that Cornelia had been murdered. She had been strangled with nylon stockings and also had bite marks on her breasts. Cornelia's murder remained unsolved until January 2013 when Rodney finally pled guilty to killing her in New York. The FBI went on to add Rodney to their list of 10 most wanted fugitives in early 1971. Keep in mind, he was literally in the FBI page. His face was there, but it was under the name, his original name, Rodney Alcala. Yet, when he moved already to New York, he was known as John Berger. So there was this whole controversy of name changing, and all you really had to know was just how he looked like. After a few months, in August, um, two children attended the art camp that he was working at, and noticed his photo on an FBI poster that was in the post office. Rodney was then arrested and extradited to California where he was charged with kidnapping, rape, child molestation, and torture in Shapiro's case. By the time Rodney was extradited to California, Shapiro's parents had relocated their family to Mexico and refused to allow Tally to testify in his trial. The police were unable to convict him of rape and attempted murder without the primary witness, which was Tally. So prosecutors were forced to permit Alcala to plead guilty to a smaller charge of assault. He was only pled guilty to child molestation, which is bizarre. Right. And like that to me was like fucked. Yeah. When he committed all those acts to Tally and the fact that they only allowed him to plead guilty to child molestation because they didn't have Tally as a witness when she is a child. Right. That's the thing that like, like sparked interest to me. Like, I understand why the parents wouldn't want the, you know, the young exactly. girl to testify. It's traumatizing being raped exactly. by a man. You don't want to talk about it. And psychologically, that will fuck someone over. You know, the whole court should be aware of that they should understand that if a little girl is not able to testify due to a horrifying situation they are still able exactly. to take the evidence from the scene may i add the whole crime scene was there the police yeah. was there they had an eyewitness there were so many things in this specific trial that could lead to Rodney, you know, going straight to jail and getting the sentences he deserves. But no, he was only pleaded guilty for child molestation. What? Right. And Tally almost died that day. So exactly. She was in a coma for 32 days. Right. 32 days. Right. Why would you want to force a child to be involved in the trial of someone who committed such horrible acts on her? And get this, so the California Parole Board released him after 34 months. And he was released because he went through rehabilitation therapy and they thought, you know, he he's improved himself. He's better. And then 
Oh, and then listen to this. Less than two months after his release, he was re-arrested for assaulting a 13-year-old girl identified in court records as Julie J for privacy issues, who had accepted what she thought would be a ride to school. Again, this was probably the same reason as to why he asked Tally to get into his car. He was then paroled once again after serving two years of an indeterminate sentence. The fact that it happened not once but twice. They still let him out on parole. It does not take two years for a rapist to stop raping. A rapist will always be a rapist. And that's my opinion. If you don't believe in it, that I'm chill with it. But I believe that once yeah. you've done the act, you will forever... You can do it again. Yeah, you'll. it's easy yeah. for you to do it. In 1977, while Rodney was still under parole, he asked his parole officer if he could go on vacation. I would say and no if I was his parole officer. Homie said, you can go back to New York City. His parole officer allowed him to travel and Rodney took the chance and went back to New York where he had just committed a crime. He had just killed Cornelia, but no one knew. He was trying to get passerbys to agree to being photographed by him. I mean, he was talented in the photography department. He did know, you know, the angles. He knew how to take photos and... <laughs> Eventually, he approached a girl named Ellen Hover. Her father was very well known in the area because he was the owner of Ciro's, which is an incredibly known and popular nightclub attended by many celebrities and very honorable members like Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and all those people at the time. So Ellen was reported missing on July 15th, 1977, which was the day after the city's infamous blackout when looting and violence was rampant while the blackout occurred. Basically, in New York City, for the whole of July 13th and July 14th of 1937, all of New York had no electricity. You know, from photos that we've seen of Ellen, she seemed like a very, very pretty girl. Her friend mentioned that she was very trusting of other people. So here we have a girl who is very open-minded and very willing to create conversations and meet new people. Anita received a phone call from Helen's mother asking if she had heard from her. And Anita had no idea. All of a sudden, she was watching the news reports and a photo of Ellen popped up. While police searched her apartment, they found a calendar with the note that on July 15th, that read John Berger. So they had assumed that that was the last person that she had met. Akala then flew back to Los Angeles and by that point, the FBI knew the name John Berger as Akala's alias from when he was caught in New Hampshire and tracked him down. He basically admitted that he had met Ellen on July 15th but claimed he never saw her again. But you know, by then authorities had not yet found her body so they determined that there was no evidence to arrest him at the time. Only 11 months after Hover went missing, her remains were found 30 miles north of the city in Terrytown, New York. Or even after finding her remains, they still had no way to connect Rodney to Ellen's death. Jill Barcombe, she was found raped in November 1977. She was raped, sodomized, and murdered in LA. Jill was found off Franklin Canyon Road down the street from Marlon Brando's home. Marlon Brando, at the time, was a very big actor. Ronnie used a large rock to smash Jill's head and then strangled her to death by tying her belt and pant leg around her neck. Yeah, the similarity between, you know, Jill and Cornelia, she was strangled with her stocking and then mm -hmm. Jill was obviously strangled with her belt on her neck. Um, her body was discovered on the 10th of November, posed on her knees with her face in the dirt. For someone who is incredibly, you know, pretty and had like a high status, all of a sudden she was left dirty, 
by herself and you start to question like what is it about these girls that attracted Rodney to I guess rip them off from the beauty that they originally present he's into photography when you take photos you usually would take of you know beautiful things things that you turn into something beautiful these women are all very beautiful women and all of a sudden they're left pretty much you know demolished at the end of whatever type of crime he commits in, with each and every one of them the next victim was georgia wixit on december 1977 like the same as um jill he also raped sodomized and murdered her georgia was 27 at the time rodney used a hammer to sexually abuse georgia so basically he used the end of the hammer to beat and smash her head again similar to jill has something to do with covering the face so he strangled her to death using a nylon stocking which is a similar item that he used with cornelia and left her body posed in her malibu apartment her body was discovered on december 16th 1977 like the fact that his methodology and even slightly his victimology is the same and you could kind of put him in like a semi-organized killer type way like back in the day nobody knew that he was the one doing these things unless he had an eyewitness so after the killings of georgia and jill this is where the whole game show dating game show controversy comes into play so same year 1978 uh rodney had murdered by that time at least five women across two different coasts but instead of laying low, what did he do? He joined a gaming show. It's just shocking how throughout most of Rodney's um, story so far, we haven't heard anything about him being involved with any woman romantically, mm -hmm. any girlfriends, any relationships. So in September 1978, he appeared as Bachelor Number One on The Dating Game, which is an American TV show. But at the time, he was a convicted child molester. But the show did not run background checks. They let a child molester in a dating show as if it was like fine because they didn't know. We know that he was part of the FBI's most wanted list. That to get up into that list, you had to have done something incredibly wrong to exactly. end up on that list. I think this was probably like a starting point for all TV shows to have checks and background checks for everything. Basically, the dating game show is a matchmaking system where the contestants basically don't see each other. So let's say the main person is a woman and there's three men behind a curtain and they just have a conversation. They talk to this woman, there's different questions. And at the end of the whole episode, the woman chooses which bachelor they wanna go on a date with. Contestant coordinator Ellen Metzger thought that Rodney was very striking at the time. Back then, her fiancé, Mike Metzger, the show's executive producer, pretty much disagreed. He said that they were talking about putting Rodney on as a contestant, and he kept saying that there was no way he had noticed him acting in a very strange or having a peculiar, you know, personality so at the end of the day they still let him in on the show who was introduced as a successful photographer i think it's weird how they didn't do anything about how you know mike said that he saw that rodney had a weird you know a strange personality and how the way that he was acting i feel that should have been a red flag straight away it's coming from a man himself if a man is able to say that this man is acting strange there's something going exactly. on there. You know, it's the saying that women understand women better when it comes to emotional- Same thing with men now. It's the same with men. But not only them, Jed Mills, who was Bachelor 2, who's literally sitting next to Alcala during this whole thing, 
felt that he was really creepy and that he noticed it straight away. So now you have two men. This whole entire production did not think he is yeah. very weird. There's something wrong with him. He was chosen to go on a date with a woman named Cheryl Bradshaw towards the end of the show. And he basically used his charm and innuendos that grabbed her attention. I mean, like we said before, Rodney was very smart and obviously he knows his way around communicating and using the right words to attract women. I mean, obviously, if he can get these girls to pose in front of a, you know, for a photograph, he can definitely attract other women to start a conversation with them. I feel like, like that's what got him into the show. Like, the fact that he had his charm and he mm -hmm. knew how to work around women. I feel like that's one, what got him into the show. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the game show, Cheryl Bradshaw, who was the contestant at the time, she chose Rodney to go on a date with her. But on the day of the date, Cheryl called Ellen, who was the contestant coordinator, and said that he was giving off weird vibes and she felt that he was very strange and he was making her uncomfortable. So she didn't want to go on a date. So she called Ellen and obviously being a woman and, you know, being aware that it's not a good thing to force someone to go on a date with yeah. someone that she feels uncomfortable with, she understood and said it was no problem. So that's the whole dating game show. The next victim is Charlotte Lamb, that this happened June 1979, exactly the same way she was raped, beat, and murdered. She is a 33-year-old legal secretary in Santa Monica. She was again, like the rest, strangled to death, but this time using a shoelace from her shoe, and he left her body posed in a laundry room of an El Segundo apartment complex, where she was discovered on June 24th. Next, Jill Parento, literally the exact same month, he raped and murdered um, Jill. She was a 21-year-old college student and she was murdered in her Burbank apartment. Exactly the same as the others. Strangled using a cord or nylon and his blood was collected from the scene after he accidentally cut himself crawling through a window. Now that, I think that was the first time they were able to... That was the mistake. That was the one mistake he made at the end of... Yeah. They ran <laughs> the blood sample and obviously he was linked straight to the murder. He was charged with murdering Parento, but the case was later dismissed. Why are cases like this going dismissed? We may never know why. Okay, so Rodney's last victim that we know is Robin Samso. She was approached by Rodney on June 20th, 1979. Robin, who was a 12-year-old, and her friend Bridget Wolvard at Huntington Beach and asked them to pose for a photo. After posing for a series of photographs, a neighbor interve intervened and asked if everything was alright, and then that's when Robin took off. Later, Robin got on her bike and headed to an afternoon dance class, and that's when Rodney took the chance, kidnapped her, and murdered her. He then dumped her body near the Sierra Madre in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. Robin's body was then scavenged by animals and her skeletal remains were discovered on July 2nd, 1979. Her front teeth had been knocked out by Rodney. He has this kind of like an obsession with beauty. He had so much hatred for it that he took these girls and pretty much made them look the ugliest on July 24th, 1979, a few days after Robin Samso's body was found, Akala was arrested at his mother's house in Monterey Park, California, and that's when he was charged with Robin's murder. While there, investigators found a receipt for a self-storage facility outside of Seattle. Seattle, how? Literally, Los Angeles, New York, Seattle. Like, you're just hopping places Exactly. Here. They uncovered a trove of evidence. 
there were thousands of pictures of people, young and old, many nude, and in compromised positions. Are we even surprised? This is just literally, you know, it's so sad and I know it's weird, but it's so sad to say that like it's expected. They also found at this um, storage locker was a variety of pieces of jewelry and they had believed that Rodney would take these as trophies from his victims. Robin's mom was um, asked to come in and that's when she identified um, one of the earrings. Serial killers collect like jewelry or pieces of clothing or something that the victims owned and keep it. How do you not feel guilty when you see that? We're gonna talk about Rodney's whole jury trial imprisonment and all that. So Rodney has been incarcerated since 1979 due to his arrest. And in 1980, Rodney was finally tried for Robin's murder. The jury convicted him and sentenced him to death. Basically the whole death row situation is he's awaiting trial for the death sentence so but four years later he basically appealed and won the verdict was overturned after the california supreme court they determined that the jurors had been improperly informed on his prior sex crimes so basically what that means is that the jury had extra information about his past life that they technically weren't even supposed to know because that you know breaks off the fact that they have juries to see whether he's guilty or not guilty they're only really supposed to focus on the current case except there were more facts that were being brought up um and then in 1986 he got a new trial seven years after robin was killed and a second jury so this is a new set convicted him and recommended he be sentenced to death now moving on in 2001 rodney appealed once again and he got his death penalty overturned because it was determined that his attorney in the second trial had not put forth a strong enough defense yeah. this is where the good stuff comes in I don't mean the good stuff, but this is where we finally get some positivity. Positive. Yeah, we get some positivity in the case. Um, in 2003, former Orange County prosecutor and ABC News contributor Matt Murphy was assigned the case. All of the DNA technology was very advanced, so he decided that he would test the jewelry that was found in the Seattle storage locker. And that's when the DNA evidence of the jewelry returned with matches to Charlotte, Jill Parenteau, Georgia, and Jill Marco. Yeah, so, so four decades later. It's literally four whole decades. Back then, he was 66 years old. He represented himself in his third trial in 2010. And for a third time, he was convicted and then sentenced to death. 2010 was 11 years ago. Like, this was quite... I would say recent for a crime yeah. that started already in the 70s. Moving on, on April 2010, the Huntington Beach Police Department made public 120 photographs that Rodney took of women to determine whether or not they may be additional victims at the time. Keep in mind, it was very difficult because it's 2010 and these photos were taken in the 70s and maybe earlier on. And these women probably look different. They moved to new locations or if they really were assaulted or murdered, it will still take time for the police to be aware of that. And on January 2013, he pled guilty to killing um, Crowley and Hover in New York and was sentenced to 25 years to life with the highest sentence. So the state of California placed a moratorium on the death penalty in 2019. This means that all prisoners on death row receive a stay of execution, meaning they're literally not on death row. He's been sitting on death row for what now? Maybe, I think, 10 years? And 
what's the point of putting someone on death row and not doing anything about it honestly like i mean okay it depends on the case i know there are a few people that are falsely brought to prison and are under death row but actually was wrongly accused of you know whatever crime or offense that they probably didn't even commit but yeah. are provided with so much evidence and so many people that have seen and also like you know the evidence of the database showing you pretty much all these women that got murdered by him this is not a joke anymore this isn't like one human this is multiple and with these occurrences why would you take so long like he's he's literally still here over the years that rodney was um, behind bars, he was given multiple opportunities to disclose information about any other additional victims as part of his plea deals to avoid the death penalty, but he continuously refused to provide any information. You know what's funny? He refuses, but then he still gets caught anyway. The whole DNA sampling thing and like the- there's so many, so many cases to this day that are currently being solved since the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s because technology is rising and everything yeah. is improving. I also read somewhere he actually, he released a true crime book basically asserting his innocence. So it's called You, the Jury, which was written by Rodney himself. And a lot of people find the book appealing, let's say, to say the least. But yeah, to this day, uh, Rodney is still in prison. He's still incarcerated. Some justice was served to the victims, like he is incarcerated and away from the public, but like, these it's girls were brutally murdered. Yeah, I think that leaves us to the whole Rodney Alcala case. I hope you guys enjoyed this whole entire podcast. Like we always say, we, you know, tried including most of the important information. We also want to let you guys know that we are on Twitter at CaseRedOfficial, where we basically update you guys on the episodes. If you do want to watch video versions of our podcasts that contain information like crime scene evidence photos and interviews and also just pretty much a visual um videography of the whole entire case please head on over to case red on youtube if you have any more ideas for a case that you want to hear more on please let us know or interact with us in our socials and we will definitely get back to you and we'll see you guys <coughs> in our next episode thank you for listening see you. Thank you for tuning into Case Red. You can find all Case Red episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms.